Hello and welcome to New Things Under the Sun. I'm Matt Clancy. This week's podcast, Age and the Nature of Innovation. Are there some kinds of discoveries that are easier to make when young and some that are easier to make when older? Obviously, yes. At a minimum, innovations that take a very long time basically have to be done by older innovators. What kinds of innovations might take a long time to complete? Perhaps those that draw on deep wells of specialized knowledge that take a long time to accumulate, or perhaps those that require grinding away at a question for years and decades, obsessively seeking the answers to riddles that are just invisible to outsiders. But what about innovations that are easier when young? Well, we can at least say they shouldn't be the kinds of innovations that take a long time to achieve. That means discoveries that can be made with years, not decades of study. But what kinds of innovations that don't take long study to make are just sitting around like unclaimed $20 bills on the sidewalk? Now, one obvious kind of unclaimed innovation is the kind that relies on ideas that have only been very recently discovered. If people learn about very new ideas during their initial training, for example, to get a PhD, well, then we might expect young scientists to disproportionately make discoveries relying on frontier knowledge, new ideas. At the same time, we might look for signs that older scientists build on older ideas, but perhaps from a place of deeper expertise. And indeed, we have some evidence that this is the case. Let's start with you et al., 2022, a study of about 7 million biomedical research articles published between 1980 and 2009. You and co-authors don't know the age of the scientists who write these articles, but as a proxy, they look at the time elapsed since their first publication. In the newsletter are several figures drawn from data in their paper on what goes into an academic paper at various stages of a research career. Uh, in one set of figures, we have two measures drawn from the text of paper titles and abstracts. Each of those identifies the concepts used in a paper's title or abstract. And those are defined to be one, two, and three-word strings of text that lie between punctuation and non-informative words. The other set of figures relies on data from the citations made by an article. And in each case, in all these figures you and co-authors separately estimate the impact of aging on first and last authors because in the biomedical sciences, uh, there's an important distinction between the sort of role of a scientist who's the first author and the last author. The first author is kind of running the experiment, doing the analysis, stuff like that. The last author is usually the principal investigator for the whole lab. He's kind of supervising and sort of setting the entire research agenda. Anyway, all of these figures also control for various other factors, including kind of what a particular scientist does on average. So we're sort of seeing as the scientist ages, you know, do their citation, do these things get better or worse? And that'll be clear when I talk about what these figures show. In economics jargon, all these things include author fixed effects. Anyway, altogether, these figures, which you can't see, but I'll describe to you, they generally tell a story of age being associated with an increasing reliance on a narrower set of older ideas. So one of the figures looks at the number of concepts that appear in a title or abstract that are younger than five years old, and that concept goes on to frequently be used in other papers. So it's important in the sense that it, it gets 
picked up and used, and it's new. Few people have used this concept before, or maybe not few people, but it only came into existence and started being mentioning and mentioned in the biomedical literature within the last five years. Looking at this statistic, early career scientists are more likely to use recent important new ideas. Another figure looks at the diversity of cited references to get an idea about what's going into these kinds of papers. And we might expect that's going to rise over a career because scientists build a larger and larger knowledge base. And so they might draw on a larger and larger set of fields. But in fact, the trend is the opposite among first authored paper, the first authors on papers. And it's just sort of mixed and bouncing around and going nowhere for last authored. What that means is at best, the tendency to expand the disciplinary breadth of references as we accumulate more knowledge over a lifetime, seems to be offset by rising disciplinary specialization. Other figures look at the average age of the concepts, concepts used in a title or abstract, or uh, the average age of the cited references. And here, age is sort of the, for concepts, it's the number of years that have elapsed since that one, two, or three word phrase appeared in some biomedical journal. For the age of references, it's how many years have elapsed since that paper that you cited was published. All of the measures go in the same direction. Older scientists rely on older ideas. Now, this is not a phenomenon that's peculiar to the life sciences. Another paper by Kui, Wu, and Evans from 2022 computes some similar metrics for a wider range of fields than you and co-authors, and they're focusing their attention on scientists with successful careers that have lasted at least 20 years, and once again, proxying scientist age by the time that's elapsed since their first paper was published. In one of the figures, we can see the average age of cited references as a function of the career age of scientists across math, agriculture, social sciences, environmental sciences, chemistry, physical sciences, engineering, biology, medicine, computer science, it's all going up and to the right. Older scientists cite older references. Another figure looks at the keywords associated with papers to measure kind of how papers are similar to each other over time. Between any two subsequent years, Qui and co-authors Calculate the share of keywords assigned to a scientist's papers, which recur in the next year. And as scientists age, their papers increasingly get assigned the same keywords from year to year. Though it's important to note the overall effect size isn't enormous here. And that suggests deeper engagement with sort of a consistent set of ideas. There's less bouncing around and exploration as you age. Lastly, we can look outside of science to invention. Kalyani, 2022, processes the text of patents to identify technical terminology and then looks for patents that have a larger than usual share of technical phrases like machine learning as a technical phrase, neural network. But they're looking for an unusually high share of technical phrases that are not previously mentioned in patents filed in the preceding five years. So these are sort of new technical phrases. And when a patent has twice as many of these new technical phrases as the average for its technology type, Kalyani calls this a creative patent. And his paper goes on to show that creative pat patents are much more correlated with lots of other interesting metrics of genuine sort of innovation. And if you want to learn more about that, check out the newsletter. It will link you to a post I've written called Innovation Mostly Gets Harder that 
delves more deeply into these metrics. So Kalyani does not know the age of inventors, but he does show that repeat inventors produce increasingly less creative patents as time goes on. And there's a figure, again, you can't see it, but it shows on average an inventor's first patent has about 25% more new technical phrases than the average for its technology class. But their second patent typically has only 5% more new technical phrases than is average for their technology. The third patent, if they patent three times, has about the same number as just an average one in the class. And then after that, they actually fall below the average. They're, they have fewer new technical phrases than the average patent. That's consistent with a story where older inventors just increasingly rely on older ideas. Now, as discussed in more detail in another post called Age and the Impact of Innovations, over the first 20 years of a scientist uh, career, the impact of their best work, their most highly cited work, is actually pretty stable. But all of what we've discussed so far suggests that might actually conceal some changes that are happening beneath the surface. At the outset, perhaps a scientist's work derives its impact through engagement with the cutting edge, but later scientists narrow their focus and the impact transitions to arising primarily from sort of a deeper expertise in a more tightly defined domain. Okay, so far we've seen some evidence that scientific discoveries and inventions are more likely to draw on recent ideas when the innovator is young and an older, narrower set of ideas and maybe deeper expertise when the scientist is older. I suspect that's, you know, just because young scientists, they hack their way to the knowledge frontier during their training period, but as scientists begin active research in earnest, well, they, they certainly invest in keeping up with the research frontier, but it's, it's hard to do that as well as someone who's just in full-on 24 hours a day training mode. And over a 20 to 40-year career, these papers find the average age of concepts used and cite the average age of references cited, it does go up, but it goes up by a lot less than 20 to 40 years. Um, actually, it's pretty amazing that the average age of concept use only goes up by about two years over a career in you et al. 2022. Now, I argued at the outset, we might expect this. The young cannot be expected to make discoveries that require a very long time to bring about. Among the set of ideas that don't take a long time to bring about, They've got to focus on innovations that haven't already been discovered by other people. And one way to do that is to draw on the newest ideas. But it might not be the only way to find ideas that you can do quick. You don't need decades to do it, uh, but they haven't already been done by other people. The economist David Galenson has long studied innovation in the arts, and he argues it's useful to think of innovative art as emerging primarily from two distinct approaches. The first approach is what he calls experimental. This is an iterative, feedback-driven process with only sort of vaguely defined goals. You try something almost at random. You stand back, you evaluate the work, and then you try again. The second approach he calls conceptual, and that entails a carefully planned approach that seeks to sort of communicate or embody a specific preconceived idea. Then the project gets executed and it emerges more or less in its completed form. Now, both approaches require a mastery of sort of the existing craft, whether that's painting or sculpture or, you know, writing. 
but the experimental approach takes a lot longer to do. Essentially, it relies on evolutionary processes, except there's artificial taste-based selection rather than sort of natural selection. Now, its advantage is that it can take us to places we can't envision in advance. But since it takes so long to walk this wandering path to novelty, Galenson argues that in the arts, experimental innovators tend to be old masters. Conceptual approaches can, in principle, be achieved at any point in a life cycle. It doesn't take a long time to wander this path. But Galenson argues that there are forces that ossify our thinking and make conceptual innovation harder to pull off at old ages. For one, making a conceptual jump seems to require trusting into a radically simplified schema, because complicated schema are too hard to plan out in advance. And then from there, you can extrapolate into sort of the unknown. But as time goes on, we add detail, we temper our initial simplifications, we add caveats, carve-outs, extensions, and maybe we no longer trust the simple models to leap into the unknown. And perhaps for these reasons, conceptual innovators tend to be young geniuses, which is what Galen's phrase for them is. Perhaps, on the other hand, it also, takes, it also gets harder to take a fresh look at a domain as we get socialized into accepting various assumptions and ways of thinking about sort of that given domain. And Galenson's theory was devised to explain artistic innovation, like in painting and sculpture and so on, but we can see similar ideas in play among scientists. So let's begin with social scientists. Galenson and Weinberg, 2019, uses 31 Nobel Prize winning economists as their data set. Their goal is to identify years when these economists made their most impactful work, and then to score that work on how conceptual or experimental it is. Then they can see if more conceptual innovators tend to make their largest impacts when young, and more experimental innovators make their contributions when older. And note for this discussion, and indeed for the rest of the podcast, by experimental, I mean experimental in Galenson's sense, not in the sense that, innovate in, that these inventors and scientists work with you know, lab experiments. For each Nobel laureate, Galenson and Weinberg identify the years in which their work received an unusually high number of citations, uh, specifically two standard deviations above that scientist's average. And then they go on to characterize the work as either conceptual or experimental. To do that, they look at just a sample of pages of each Nobel laureate's high-impact work, and they score the sample on various criteria that they associate with conceptual or experimental innovation. For example, the more pages with equations or formal proofs, the more conceptual they classify that innovation. And that's because they think of conceptual innovators as working deductively, deriving their findings from sort of a priori logic. Meanwhile, the more pages they identify that reference specific places, time periods, industries, or commodities, the more experimental they classify this work. And here the argument is experimental innovators are assumed to work inductively. They're often generalizing from data and facts that have been accumulated over an entire lifetime. At the end of this exercise, they can rate economists on a spectrum from very experimental to very conceptual. So whatever you think of this approach, their index certainly differentiates two very different kinds of economists. Famous Economic historians like Douglas North and Robert Fogel, who are sort of steeped in the concrete and the real, they end up on one extreme, and abstract theorists like Kenneth Arrow and Gerard de Bru, they end up on the other side. 
Robert Solo, who did a combination of empirical and theoretical work, he ends up in the middle. And when they statistically estimate the age at which economists achieve unusually high impact, they find that these extreme Aero de Bru type conceptual innovators are most likely to make their biggest contributions around age 35, while the sort of extreme North Fogel type experimental innovators, economic historians, are most likely to make their biggest contributions at age 56. There's also a small tendency for the research of economists to get more experimental and less conceptual as they age. But that effect's actually pretty small. To a first approximation, it's true that sort of people have this innate talent for research that is some mix of experimental or conceptual, and then this underlying sort of type predicts the age that they're likely to make their mark. That's from a sample of just 31. But Jones and Weinberg 2011 and Jones, Reedy, and Weinberg 2014 performs a related analysis for winners of the Nobel Prize in Physics, Chemistry, and Medicine. Whereas the economics Nobel is sort of closer in spirit to a lifetime achievement award, the Nobel in these other fields is just for a specific discovery. So they're not going to have to go through and like find the, your high impact periods in your life. Instead, they're going to look at the discovery that won the Nobel for you. And Jones and Weinberg don't classify these discoveries as experimental or conceptual, but they do break the winners down into theoretical and empirical discoveries. It's not an exact match with Galenson's ideas, but theoretical innovations seem more closely related to conceptual innovations. And across all three fields, they do find that theoretical discoveries tend to be made by at an age that is about four years younger than the age at which Nobel Prize winning empirical discoveries are made. Now, Nobel laureates in general, that's a bigger sample than just sort of merely economics Nobel laureates, but it's still a pretty small sample, though worth paying attention to if we think only the biggest scientific breakthroughs count for much. But we actually have some hints that this notion that conceptual innovation favors the young is a broader phenomenon. One line of evidence comes from a measure of how disruptive is a given scientific paper or invention, based on how often a paper or patent is cited on its own versus in conjunction with the papers and patents that it cites. The intuition of this disruption measure is that when a paper or patent is disruptive, it renders older work obsolete, and hence older work no longer gets cited by future scientists and inventors who are working on the same area. Now, while this disruption index wasn't designed to measure whether a discovery is conceptual or experimental in the sense meant by Galenson, I think it seems related. We can imagine conceptual work is more likely to show up as more disruptive in this index since it doesn't arise from a deep engagement with earlier work. It's just this new kind of fully formed thing that got reasoned through in advance. So maybe for this kind of highly conceptual work, people don't feel it's important to cite the work's own references because they aren't particularly germane. And that's going to look like a very disruptive paper because this paper, this or this index classifies you as disruptive if people, when they cite you, they don't cite your references. In contrast, the typical experimental discovery, it might just be one more incremental step in a direction of sort of ever increasing novelty. It's not necessarily a break with the past, and perhaps earlier work continues to get cited. In fact, Galenson argues in the arts, conceptually innovative artists tend to have their acclaim more concentrated on a small number of sort of these breakthrough pieces, 
while experimentally innovative artists have a claim that tends to be spread out over lots of different bodies, like a large body of work. Now, that's a lot of throat clearing. It's to say we have good evidence across a really big sample of scientists and inventors that papers and patents get less disruptive as scientists and inventors age. Uh, two figures you can't see, one for scientific papers from Kui, Wu, and Evans, 2022, another for patents from Kaltenberg, Jaffe, and Lachman. Both show disruption declining as scientists or inventors age. Now, the story up to now is that some innovations take a long time to achieve, possibly because they draw on deep wells of specialized knowledge, possibly because they require lots of iterative exploration, maybe both. We would expect this kind of work to be more prevalent among older scientists and inventors, and that seems to be the case, as measured by the novelty of phrases in their work, the keywords assigned to their work, the age of their cited references, and the tendency of later inventors to cite their work in conjunction with earlier antecedents. When this kind of work is really impactful and gets a Nobel Prize, well, the prize winner is likely to have done the work when they're a bit older. Younger innovators have this door to impact. It's closed to them. Their success is instead more likely to be founded on either recent ideas, where low-hanging fruits are sort of still there waiting to be plucked, at least that's the impression one gets from the novelty of phrases in their work and the age of their citations. Alternatively, their work might draw on conceptual breakthroughs that can emerge from thinking through the implications of just the simplified model. And that might account for their tendency to score much higher on disruption indices and for Nobel Prize winning work of this type to be achieved at a younger age. Now, you might ask though, why can't this path that the younger innovators take also remain open to older innovators? Maybe older innovators actually do just include a mix of drawing on new, fresh ideas, plus the old ideas that they have expertise in. And maybe it's actually just a mix of conceptual, and they've added experimental innovation to their toolkit. And then younger innovators, they just have to draw exclusively from you know new ideas and conceptual innovation well. Such a dynamic where the young are exclusively relying on one type of innovation and the old are relying on that plus this extra uh, option open to them. Well, that would also generate this sort of flavor of result that on average, younger in innovators use newer ideas and have more conceptual innovation and older uh, innovators rely on older ideas and more experimental innovation. Now, I think this is actually part of the story. Kui, Wu, and Evans compute the distribution of the age of references relative to the year of your first publication for scientists with different career lengths. And they do find scientists are most likely to cite work published right before their own first publication. But the longer your career, the wider the distribution of reference ages. New work does get cited nearly as much as old work. But on the question of the sort of conceptual versus experimental approaches, it doesn't really seem to be the case that Older inventors do everything, and younger inventors are exclusively focused on this sort of conceptual innovation. If we look at Nobel laureates, it just isn't the case that conceptual breakthroughs are widely dispersed across the young and the old, while experimental breakthroughs are clustered only among the older. Indeed, it seems that Nobel Prize-winning conceptual and theoretical breakthroughs really are clustered among the young, 
and experimental breakthroughs really are clustered among the old. I think it would be great if we could see the distribution of sort of these disruption index scores across age ranges because we have so much more data about the disruption of individual papers, but neither paper reports that. So perhaps, as Galenson argues, there really is something about age that inhibits these sort of conceptual breakthroughs. Maybe that's neurological, or maybe it's just an outcome of as you accumulate facts, they force us to build nuanced mental models. Anyway, whatever the cause, if that's the case, perhaps the rising burden of knowledge, which raises the age at which innovators seem to get innovating, well, that could begin to make major conceptual innovations increasingly rare. And hey, maybe that's one reason why, as I've argued in some other posts, science seems to be getting harder. Lastly, let's return to this question of what kinds of innovations are just sitting there, undiscovered, even though they don't necessarily rely on a very long period of study. I can think of one more category of innovations that might qualify, and that is innovations that depend on seeing old ideas in a new light. And perhaps that favors the young, as we've discussed, because they don't come with preconceptions and assumptions. But I would also bet on outsiders, people who are maybe older, but they developed their assumptions, their models of the world in another context. And maybe, in fact, they have an advantage because they're able to connect these old ideas in a field they're unfamiliar with to knowledge that they have and they are familiar with. And that, in turn, might be sort of this un, this unexamined advantage of older innovators. But that's only going to work if they put themselves in the position to encounter ideas that are new to them, although perhaps not new to the world. Thanks for listening. And now it's time for the standard end of the episode boilerplate. You've been listening to a podcast from New Things Under the Sun, a living literature review with the mission of communicating what academia knows about innovation in accessible but rigorous research syntheses. New Things Under the Sun is a living literature review, which means I go back and update these research syntheses as new research is published or I discover it. The podcast you listen to is taken from the first published version of one of these syntheses. To see if there's been any updates about the claims made in this podcast, or to learn more about this project, head to newthingsunderthesun.com.